Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. The cost of inaction is staggering as we watch yet another severe surge of COVID-19. With total of about 16 million cases and almost about 300,000 deaths in the United States, hospitals are reaching capacities everywhere. Healthcare workers getting sick, getting tired and burned out, and people are getting COVID-19 fatigued. Attention and due diligence in following public health measures, which have shown to work in decreasing the spread and transmission, must continue. We must not let our guard down. Let us continue all the health measures that we have been doing and encourage everyone to do the same. That is masking, physical distancing, hand washing, avoiding crowds and large groups, and self-care. The vaccine is here. Vaccination will actually start in a week time, although not a substitute to the public health measures which are crucial to our survival, we should encourage everyone to get vaccinated once offered. Your doctors, your scientists, healthcare regulation boards will continue monitoring vaccine implementation and outcomes, as well as adverse effects. Your doctors who commonly explain risk and benefits of every treatment to you, will do the same here. This is yet another intervention on prevention of the disease spread, that the benefits to you outweighs the risk of the vaccine. We need to educate the public as to the importance of the vaccine and help mitigate the misinformation and myths out there. Anti-vaccine individuals are in full force out there as we watch cases and deaths skyrocket in unprecedented rates in the U.S. and globally. Today, we will hear the science of the vaccine and how this vaccine can benefit you. May I welcome Dr. Kathleen Kenny, who will share some information in the biology of COVID-19 and how the vaccine was created to target the spike protein and some key points about the vaccine. So may I welcome Dr. Kathleen Kenny, who is a very favorite esteemed colleague of mine and a friend. She is a clinical associate professor of medicine at Stanford University. She is a passionate advocate for high-quality patient care, an esteemed educator, and a humanitarian. She volunteered in one of our ABCs for Global Health Medical Missions in Iloilo, Philippines, where we saw 8,000 patients in one week. She most recently delivered a phenomenal presentation to the community in San Francisco Bay Area on COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. We hope that she will inspire the widespread adoption of the vaccine as it becomes available this week to healthcare workers, frontline workers, residents of nursing homes and assisted living the elderly and high-risk individuals, essential workers, and then the general public. 
let us welcome Dr. Kathleen Kenny. Hey, Kathleen, welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you so much for that warm introduction, Juliana. It's really a pleasure to be here for your podcast. And thank you for joining me today to explore this one of the most important innovation in medicine. Kindly share with us what you know about the vaccine. So tell me first, what interested you to, to present this uh, vaccine story? Well, of course, we're all very interested in a vaccine because we know that we want to open up society again. I personally want to get back in society again, and I know that my patients do as well. There have been incredible social and economic costs of this virus, in addition to the horrible health suffering that we've witnessed. So I think we're all looking for an answer. And short of a vaccine or a therapy, we really don't have any way of opening up society again. And we don't really have a truly very effective therapy to date. There, of course, are some things out there. We know dexamethasone may have some benefit. There are some other antivirals that may have some benefit, but really, we really aren't going to have a big impact on this virus until we have a vaccine or a better therapy. And these vaccines are extremely effective, and I'm really excited that they've presented this amazing data, 95% efficacy, which we'll get into. Wow. Yeah, I echo your sentiments. I think everyone is getting tired of being cooped inside their houses, uh, everything locked down. So yeah, I agree with you. So tell me, what are vaccines and give us the types of vaccines that we have available thus far? So the concept of a vaccine is that you're going to administer an attenuated form of a disease so that the body's immune system can recognize and mount an army response against that pathogen before it actually sees the true pathogen. So whatever you're administering to a person through the vaccine should be something that won't cause disease itself, but rather will have elements of it that mimic the proteins or the surface elements of that pathogen so that our immune system will recognize it when it sees the real real deal. There is both a B cell and T cell response in our immune system. And I don't want to get too deep into biology, but the B cells create antibodies and the T cells generate natural killer cells. And both of those are activated when we then see the pathogen down the road, if and when we see the pathogen. So a pathogen means like the microorganism, right? Like either a virus or a bacteria, correct? Absolutely. It could okay. be a bacteria or a virus. And so I was you know, looking into the history. The first vaccine, many will know, it was actually the smallpox vaccine, which was very long ago. It was since 1796 was the first smallpox vaccine. So that was the first vaccination worldwide. And smallpox was a horrible scourge. It killed one third of the people that it infected. So it was even worse than COVID-19. So I think vaccines have really, really significantly reduced human disease across many centuries. The influenza vaccine, we many are familiar with that. That's a yearly vaccine. And we have a whole host of other vaccines against measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B is a more recent vaccine. Most of the vaccines to date have been what we call live attenuated vaccines, which means that we're modifying that viral structure or that bacterial structure so that it's not pathogenic, but it's still somewhat of an intact molecule. The hepatitis B vaccine is a little bit different in that we're actually taking a piece or a protein, surface protein of the virus, and using that as the inoculum. But this, we'll talk about the, the COVID-19 va virus vaccines are extremely novel, and we've never actually used these uh, to any great degree in, in humans before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the purpose of the vaccine is not treatment, correct? It is prevention. Absolutely. We're preventing disease because we're basically telling our immune system what to look out for. And our immune system is able to mount a response that goes into our memory. We, our lymph nodes have a, many memory T cells. 
And those cells get activated when we then see the pathogen months later and potentially even years later, depending on the potency and durability of that vaccine. For instance, with a measles vaccine, you may see the measles virus 30 years after having re received the vaccine, and you'll still have a memory to that. And you'll be able to mount a proper immune response so that the virus can't get a stronghold on the body. Exactly. Okay. So in our body, we have the T cells, which are composed of memory cells, killer cells, suppressor cells, right? And then we have the humoral part, which are the, the B cells, and they produce immune components, right? Antibody, antibodies. So the antibodies okay. come from the B cell side, and the T cell side produces natural killer cells, which directly kill viruses and other pathogens. And also amongst the T cells are these memory cells that are critically important because, again, we want to vaccinate people and have that memory last as long as possible. It's actually not entirely clear how long the vaccine memory will be with this newest crop of vaccines. We'd love it to be one year, but we'd love it to be even longer. Five or 10 years would be great. It's, it's not clear at this time how long that memory will last. Absolutely. We will find out, I suppose, correct? So tell me, I know this vaccine was developed, although it's a new technology, it's not completely new because it's been studied like about a decade now, right? From the previous viruses that we had like MERS and SARS-CoV-1, right? Tell me about the development of this mRNA vaccine and what is it? How is this different from the live attenuated vaccine? Yes. So as you point out, we have some history uh, developing mRNA platform vaccines because uh, there was a lot of work on the SARS and MERS. MERS, many people may not know, but it was Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, which was another coronavirus that looks a lot like SARS and COVID-19. Additionally, they had looked at using mRNA platforms for cancer delivery to treat cancer so that you would have the molecule that looked like a cancer cell and the body would then generate an immune response against a cancer. And that's, I think those trials are still ongoing. Those cancer trials have been ongoing with the RNA platforms for about a decade now. So I think there is a lot of research that's been going on for, as I said, at least a decade on the mRNA concept, but we haven't been able to deliver an effective approved mRNA vaccine to date. We were able to leapfrog on the work that many had done over the last decade so that we were able to get this vaccine with a lot of money and resources committed to get this turned around within a year, which is remarkable. How are they different? As we said, most of the historical vaccines are attenuated molecules. So an entire viral molecule that's been grown in, let's say, a chicken egg, grown to multiply many, many times. So we have lots of viral particles and then they're heat treated so that they become less pathogenic and they're not pathogenic than when they're administered in the form of a vaccine. The mRNA is actually much faster and easier to develop and scale. And so you can get rapid production of mRNA vaccines, which is a huge advantage. And let me go into some basic biology here again to understand what is an mRNA itself. In terms of what the body does, we all know about DNA, that is our genetic code. In all of our cells, we have RNA production from the DNA molecule. And DNA is just a string of, of nucleic acids. And RNA is basically a mirror image of that DNA. So it gets produced from that strand of DNA. And then from that RNA, we then make, again, mirror image uh, nucleic acid strands, which generate proteins. And proteins can be uh, enzymes in the cell and surface proteins that attach and do other things. In this case, what we're doing is we're taking a usual platform of the cell, which is that our cell normally takes RNA and makes proteins out of it. And we're administering an artificial strand of RNA to then use our natural cellular machinery to manufacture a protein. And that protein, in fact, is the S protein. 
And the S protein is needed by COVID-19 to infect all of our cells. So if we have an antibody that will latch onto that S protein of the virus, it will then prevent it from causing its damage and attaching to all of the cells that we know COVID-19 does cause all the problems in the body. What you are saying, though, the messenger RNA is really not getting into the nucleus of the cell and altering the person's genetic material, right? It doesn't act. It just sends only a signal or an instruction. And that's a really important point, because I think there is a lot of fear about a new vaccine and a new platform. But remember that this mRNA is it's a string of nucleic acids that it it looks for all the world like other mRNAs that we might produce naturally in our cells. And the mRNA is not going to incorporate into our genome. So there's nothing permanent about it. What is contained in this mRNA vaccine is the strand of nucleic acids, as well as four fat molecules, or which we call lipids, and some salt and some table sugar or sucrose and some potassium. So that's really all that's in the entire vaccine. The mRNA that's then transcribed into proteins, we talked about the S protein being made. Once we make adequate S protein, then we generate the immune response we want. After about two to three days, according to my reading, the mRNA molecule is then dissolved by the cell. So it is not even a permanent aspect of the cell after it's done what it needs to do. The thing that will be permanent, we hope, or long-lasting, is the B-cell antibody production and the memory T-cell that results from this process. But the mRNA itself will be gone from the, the cytoplasm of the cell after it's done what it needs to do. So let me just encapsulate that so it will clarify this to our listener. Thank you for explaining. So the mRNA is enveloped by this coating material, so it prevents the cell from degrading the mRNA that's inside the coating, right? So as it enters the cell, the coating dissolves, the mRNA sends the signal, and it also gets dissolved. So it doesn't get even incorporated into the nucleus of the cell and will not alter your or my genetic material if I get vaccinated, correct? No. And this is a really important safety aspect, which is that this mRNA molecule, as you point out, is housed in a lipid or fat shell. And the shell is only there because if you administer the mRNA vaccine, it would be dissolved before it was able to even do anything in any of the cells because the bloodstream would actually rapidly degrade that string of nucleic acids without that coating. So that lipid coating enables it to last long enough to get into a white blood cell or a cell of interest. And then, as you mentioned, it's not even going into the nucleus, but rather going into the cytoplasm or exterior aspect of the cell to then generate the proteins. And as soon as that lipid layer has been dissolved, it's a very fragile strand and will then be dissolved within days. Wow. It's amazing. The science of this is really still amazes me to this point. So we say that this is prevention, not treatment. So it doesn't really prevent transmission, but it prevents someone who got the vaccine from developing the disease, right? Before, when you get exposed to the virus, you have already the memory cells that could prevent the penetration of that virus into your cell, right? Yes. I mean, the idea is that If one does become ill with COVID-19, which very few did in the trial, let me say that, if you did, it would probably be a more attenuated form of the disease. Because again, the hope is that you have some memory T cells, if not a great number of them, that will then recognize and mount that antibody response and that T cell response very, very quickly upon seeing that surface protein, which again, all these viral molecules have. And will sort of stop it in its tracks. 
so that you don't even experience any clinical uh, infection or disease. Now, one of the things that's actually of interest with regard to the vaccine trials is whether these vaccines actually prevent carriage state. So that would be really helpful to know from an infectivity standpoint. So in other words, if I get a vaccine, I have a very successful chance of never having having disease with COVID-19. In fact, 95% from the latest two Pfizer and Moderna reports. However, what we don't know is whether I could still be infected to a low level degree in my nose or my pharynx and carry that virus and then spread it to somebody who is not immune. So that carriage rate is, was not tested in these trials. They are looking at that in you know, future study of these patients. But what, in terms of getting the emergency use authorization from the FDA, that was not information that was sought. And it would have required regular nasal PCR screening and swabs of all of the patients in the trial at a very regular frequency to determine if that really was reduced as well as just clinical disease from receiving the vaccine. I'm so happy that you clarified that because even if I was vaccinated, it doesn't mean that I will not be transmitting the virus. So you still wear your mask, you still protect yourself, and so you could protect other people, right? So because you don't know who was vaccinated or who was not vaccinated or who had the disease or not have the disease. So So that's correct. So until we get an adequate number of people vaccinated or immune from natural immunity, we're still unfortunately going to need the masking just for that very reason. Now, again, data may come out over the next year that in fact, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine and maybe other vaccines also reduce carriage significantly. Maybe they also reduce carriage rates by 95%. That would be wonderful, but we just don't know that information yet. Okay. So tell me the emergency use that was actually approved by the FDA and all of this warp speed development of the vaccine. Is that compromising safety or is that translating to not rigorously tested before it was authorized on an emergent basis? I think that's a fear many may have, but in fact, in order to get the emergency use authorization, the companies still had to submit to the FDA. In this case, I'm talking about Pfizer, which has received the emergency use authorization to date is the only company. And they had to still submit what we call phase one, phase two, and phase three data to the FDA. And the usual processes occurred. The thing that was probably different in this case is that the FDA moved through this very quickly in terms of, of you know, committing a lot of resources and staff and, and individuals to review the data. But the data was still reviewed and they still looked at you know, over, I think it was 34,000 people in the Pfizer trial. So the safety was extraordinary. There were a few minor cases of allergies and redness at the uh, local injection site and fever and flu-like symptoms, but these only lasted for a day or two. There was no life-threatening anaphylactic reaction, according to Pfizer, from the vaccine. So safety was excellent. Yes. To recapitulate, thank you for saying that there were no omission of the safety mechanism precaution for development of the vaccine. Tell us, like, how would this pan out? How would you say the implementation pathway is all about? Like, who will get vaccinated first and why? And do we have enough vaccines there? And how many doses? And what is the duration in between to wait before the second vaccine? The Pfizer vaccine requires the dosing to be three weeks apart from each other. The first uh, dose is received three weeks later, a second dose. And the Moderna schedule seems to be a four-week apart schedule. Some of the other vaccine makers, they have suggested that they might only need one dose, but it still remains to be seen on that with the schedule and the number. With regard to the allocation schemes, 
the CDC has reviewed suggestions from the Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Sciences. The CDC has its own advisory committee on immunization practices, and they looked at a number of aspects to determine the proper allocation ethical, socioeconomic, and health impact. And what they determined in the end was that the first recipients of the vaccine would be healthcare workers and seniors living in congregate living situations. And if you're asking if I agree with that allocation, I do think it is a sensible one. And here's why. 40% of the COVID-19 deaths in this country have been seniors living in congregate living situations. So they're a particularly high group for death. And I think that they should absolutely be front of the line. With regard to choosing healthcare workers, again, a disproportionate number of healthcare workers have been infected with the virus compared to the, the lay public. And I think the biggest aspect there is sensible is that we really can't afford to have a significant portion of our healthcare force out of work with the surge that has, has already started, the second surge, which has been going on for the last several weeks. We know that middle parts of the country have been ravaged. And if they were to have half of their ICU staff, nurses, physicians, cleaners, and staff that service the patients out because of illness, they would simply not be able to provide health care to their communities. So I believe that first tier allocation is very sensible. In terms of the second tier allocation, there have been a couple of suggestions and iterations that I've seen from the CDC, one of which is to have essential workers be the second tier, and another is to basically take those that have high-risk medical conditions and have those folks be in the second tier. And it may be that there will be some hybrid decision-making there. Remember that the CDC ACIP Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices makes these recommendations and the states ultimately can decide how they will specifically allocate the vaccines to their people. The states are getting an allocation based on their population relative to the U.S. population. And then the governors and the states can determine exactly how they wish, if they're going to follow precisely the CDC recommendations. In terms of the numbers that we're talking about, there are about 23 million in that first tier, which includes about 20 million or 21 million healthcare workers and about 3 million seniors living in congregate living. Pfizer has promised that they can deliver 20 million, or I should say 40 million doses by the end of 2020, enough to vaccinate 20 million individuals. So essentially, they're providing enough vaccine for that first tier. Now, whether all of that distribution uh, will occur and the vaccinations will occur on that schedule, that remains to be seen. That may be a little bit optimistic, but I think probably by early January, we can complete that endeavor, which is the first tier, perhaps by mid, mid to late January, depending on. And when I say that, I mean the first dose, probably the second dose would be February by the time getting everybody vaccinated in that first tier. Well, there was even the ethical thought about why not just give the first vaccine to a lot of people. And by the time that you're ready for the three weeks or four week mark, you could get the second one. Uh, so a lot more people will be vaccinated. But I guess the momentum is to give the two vaccines to an individual, right, rather than split the dose. Yeah, and, co and cover more people. What I'm saying is like, if you if you only have 20 million vaccines, right, why can't you vaccinate 40 million people right now? Because in three weeks, we could develop more. Yeah, I understand your point. I, I think that problem is that if you were to go off schedule, it's not clear if it would be as effective. And so if we had some delay in manufacturing, then you had many, many people that had gotten the first dose but we're then going to wait two to three months to get their second dose. Are we going to have to measure titers? Are we going to have a whole other set of problems on our hands in terms of figuring out whether those people have immunity? 
Yeah. So that's still largely unknown, right? Because after the first vaccination, you get about what? 55% response of antibody. And then the second will give you the additional to what? About 75% more or what is, what are the numbers? I actually haven't seen the specific numbers. I believe you do get antibody response from your first dose, but I can't give you a quantifiable percentage on that. Yeah, I think the first preliminary data that they were showing is after the first one, you get about 50, 55% response. And then on the second one, then you get the additional 75 to 80% response. But the vaccine is touted to be 95% efficacious, right? Yeah, I guess I, I think that when you talk about those numbers, you're probably talking about titers or some other metric in terms of measuring or gauging the immune response as mm-hmm. opposed to clinical disease. Right. Because remember, in the Pfizer trial, only 8 out of 17,000 people developed COVID. So I have a feeling that when you cite those numbers, you're talking about the some, titers, the, the titers, titers of the antibody. Right. Remember, the problem with the titers is that that only is one half of the immune response. So the B cells we talked about create antibodies, which, which you know, you have titers that you can measure. T cells have this other natural killer cell development that is also very important in our immune response. And that may not be measured by what you just cited. Exactly, exactly. So a lot of it is unknown there, but our regulation boards will will do surveillance and monitoring of the data as we go along, right? So hopefully by year 2021, the first quarter, we will be achieving a high adoption of the vaccine and then we'll develop this what we call herd immunity. Can you talk about herd immunity? Yeah, that's a really important concept and probably many of your listeners have heard this concept. What this means is that once we reach herd immunity, we can reopen society. And there's something called a herd immunity threshold. And that is felt to be probably around 70%. So that means that when 70% of Americans have either been vaccinated or are natively immune from having had COVID before, we can reopen society. I think that's the, the short answer. Herd immunity depends a little bit on the R coefficient, which is the transmissibility of that particular infection. And the R coefficient depends on the biology of that disease, as well as the public health measures and the masking. So all of those things can vary. But generally, I would think that 70%, 60 to 70% is a reasonable number to think about as far as a threshold for herd immunity. And when we get to that point, enough people are immune that if you're out and about, you're unlikely to transmit to more than one person if you do have COVID. And as you get what we call that R coefficient, when that R coefficient falls below one, your disease then starts to fall on the downslope and eventually it peters out to zero and you've literally conquered this disease. Wow. So this is really a great development. We're looking forward to the rapid implementation of this vaccination to the uh, general public. I know we have tiers of allocations, but the final vision is it will be offered to everybody, right? So just be flexible, wait for your turn type of thing. So tell me, we're about at the end of our session. It really just went so quickly. I just would like you to share some summary points, like take-home points for our listeners. Sure. I think people are certainly you know, scared about something new. This is a new concept as far as we talked about. This is a different type of vaccine than we've had before. However, I explained the reasons earlier about why I believe it is very safe. And let me just start by saying I will be first in line to get a vaccine. So that should speak for itself. That's my level of concern about the safety of this vaccine. I would be first in line if offered. I think that obviously I don't need to tell people that this has been a 
horrible transformation of our society. We talked about it, the economic and social costs, the health suffering. I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm very excited. I'm very optimistic. I hope that there is great uptake on this vaccine. I know that the polling has been variable. There's up to 20 or more percent of people that say they're very hesitant to receive the vaccine. But I think the thing I would say is that, yes, it's a new platform for vaccines, but we talked about the mRNA is going to be dissolved in your cell within days. So there's nothing durable there that will be problematic. And remember, if COVID, if you actually get an, a true COVID infection, we don't know about that virus in terms of it lingering and causing long-term aspect to our health as well. So I think for me, I would take the gamble on the vaccine before taking a gamble on potentially having long-term health impact of COVID-19, which would be potentially shortness of breath with running or this sort of long holler concept. So to me, I feel like the risk of the vaccine is much, much lower than the risk of long-term COVID complications. Remember that these vaccines have been trialed in over 30 or 40,000 individuals. So there could be some rare side effects that might occur in a one in a million level. But we know that when you're looking at 30, 40,000 people, they're very safe. And the only side effect seems to be redness and local injection site reactions with the initial Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. What we don't know is whether these vaccines are going to protect against carriage rate. I mentioned that earlier. I think that's really important, as we, especially when we're in the transition phase when we haven't gotten everybody vaccinated. But I think ultimately when we get to everybody being vaccinated, that will be less of a concern. But in that transition phase, we'll have to still wear masks. And then finally, I'll say, as I said before, we don't know if these vaccines are going to provide immunity for one year, five years, or 10 years or, or longer. We really just don't know how long they're going to last for. And so it may be that people will need to get annual vaccines against COVID-19. So I think that that's very unclear at this time. I'm very optimistic. I'm thrilled with the work of our basic science people around the world that they've been able to produce these vaccines so rapidly, and they're going to transform our society. Yeah, and I'm so proud of the leaders also mobilizing our resources, like in terms of funding and the generation of all the scientists who are working on this project. So tuned in, but when it's offered to you, please accept the vaccine. And I think you and I, Kathleen, and all of the other doctors there have our homework yes, mapped, out, mapped out for us to encourage people to take on the vaccine, right? So... Thank you so much, Kathleen, for that really great introduction to this vaccine implementation. Again, it's out. It will probably be given to healthcare workers as early as next week. Very exciting. Thank you for having me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for your time, Kathleen. Take care. Have a wonderful afternoon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.